Let's pray. Father, help us not to overlook those who you would have us see. Help us, Lord, not to be hard-hearted and tight-fisted, but open-hearted and open-handed towards those who need our help. And we pray that this parable would help us to take this to heart and to to weave it into our, our lives and our actions. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this sermon is an exhortation to mercy and to generosity. On Thursday night, I was uh, at the launch of David Seckham's book called The Poor and Their Possessions. Uh, David Seckham was for many years the rector at St Matthew Shenton Park and in 1978 he submitted a PhD thesis to Cambridge University on the possession, or possessions and the poor in Luke and Acts. And so to be there at the republication of this PhD and to buy a copy was quite handy as I came to prepare tonight's sermon on, indeed, a parable that very much concerns the poor in Luke. Now, David said at the speech that he made at the launch that he was motivated to study this topic in part because he encountered Christians who were very anxious about being wealthy and Christians who wondered how they could be saved given how the rich come in for such a roasting, especially in the Gospel of Luke. And indeed, I myself could relate to that. I recently have had a conversation with somebody who was very much of the opinion that unless you were poor, you were, had a pretty low chance of making it anywhere near, let alone through the gates of heaven. And our readings today all condemn the feasting and lounging class. Amos 6, 4-7, you lie on beds adorned with ivory and lounge on your couches. You dine on choice lambs and fatted calves. You strum away on your harps like David and improvise on musical instruments. You drink wine by the bowlful and use the finest lotions, but you do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore... You'll be among the first to go into exile. Your feasting and lounging will end. And in Luke 16, we have the rich man dressed in purple and fine linen, living in luxury every day. And he is told as he suffers in Hades, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here And you are in agony. Now, does this mean that all the rich will writhe and wail in the next world, while all the beggars will feast and lounge? Is that the way it works with God and his judgment? Does it mean that to be saved, we should basically ensure that we are lying hungry and ulcerated at the gates of some rich estate? And if it doesn't mean that, what does it mean? So let's have a look today at this passage from Luke's Gospel and think about how it might touch our lives. As far as the story goes, I'd say Jesus' story dramatises the teaching of Moses and the prophets. The teaching was given to them, not to Israel, not to ignore the poor. And it still functions today to us as a call to prioritise mercy and generosity over self-indulgence. The story opens by introducing an attractive figure. There was a rich man 
who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. Now, the rich, of course, can afford to look good. They get the best fabrics. They have the rarest and most costly dyes. The, the purple, it was for kings and emperors, really. Uh, they have good tailors. And leisure preserves their youth. And lotions make their skin glow. And good food keeps them healthy. And the rich look good and they live well. They travel, they shop, they pursue their interests. They surround themselves with beauty and talented people. And hence they are objects of fascination. You can turn on the TV and open a magazine and see the lifestyles of the rich and their gorgeous houses and the great holidays they go on, the hotels they stay in. And this evokes our desire and our envy and perhaps even our resentment. There is the first man in the parable. The parable continues by introducing someone we perhaps prefer not to see. Verse 20, at his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. And on the whole, you know, we'd prefer to look in to see the rich man in his fine purple and his gorgeous house rather than to look down and see this poor man washed up like detritus at his gate. But Jesus makes us consider him. His name is supplied to us. It's Lazarus. Jesus' parables are fictions. They are stories. This is not a narration um, about the life of a living individual. But Lazarus, a character in Jesus' story, is given a name, which is rare in parables, so that he appears to us as an individual. Someone who's not merely an anonymous beggar, but has a life, has an experience, has a name. We get a glimpse of his inner life. He longed to eat what fell from the rich man's table. This rich man knew him, for Lazarus lay at his gate. Uh, He recognised Lazarus sitting at Abraham's side later on in verse 23, and he knows Lazarus by name. Send Lazarus. But the rich man let Lazarus lie at his gate longing for scraps, with dogs licking his sores. And the time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. There is no mention there of Lazarus' burial. Even if human beings, though, did not honour him in life or in death, the angels of God do. The rich man also died and was buried, and perhaps he was buried in his fine purple and linen and in a fresh cut tomb. But then everything changes and the roles are reversed as the story proceeds. The rich man's earthly paradise is gone and now he's reduced to begging for relief from his hellish lot. Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. Now, as I said, Jesus is telling a story, a parable, Uh, We need not take him to be describing the hereafter in any direct or literal way. He's using the idea of Hades, the Greek name for the underworld, or the idea of Abraham's bosom or Abraham's side, to refer to things that are hidden from us, the consequences beyond this life of our choices and deeds here and now. And the point of the parable is to impress upon us the importance 
of the lives we live here and now. The rich man's request, or to the rich man's request, Abraham says, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in agony. Reflect, says Abraham, on what you surely know, that you lived thinking only of the good things of this world, and not of the way that God might call you to store up treasure for the world to come by caring for those around you. Reflect, says Abraham, that Lazarus is receiving now from God the comfort that he should have had, in part, from you while he lived. And, says Abraham, besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. It was a time of choice, of freedom and opportunity for repentance. But now, says Abraham to the rich man, things are fixed. The rich man thinks of his brothers then. He, he answered, I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family. For I have five brothers. Let them warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. Now what would they hear if they did listen to Moses and the prophets? Here's Moses in Deuteronomy 15. If anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites in any of the towns of the land that the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted towards them. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend them whatever they need. Give generously to them and do so without a grudging heart. And because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you put your hand to. There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore I command you to be open-handed towards your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. So there's Moses. What about the prophets? Here's the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 58. Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? Is it not to share your food with the hungry, to provide the poor wanderer with shelter, when you see the naked, to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Isn't that clear enough and authoritative enough? No, Father Abraham, the rich man said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. You don't know the human heart, says Abraham. Miraculous messengers from the dead will not succeed where Moses and the prophets draw a blank. So there is Jesus' story, stark, confronting dramatisation of the ancient message of Moses and the prophets, that the command of God is that in Israel people should be merciful to the poor and ready to help with what they need, and that God will judge all those who fail in this duty. So what about our lives? What does it mean for us? Well, I'd say God calls us to be merciful and generous to those in need, and not to ignore them in order to enjoy what wealth we can obtain. Let me make some comments on that. Firstly, this isn't saying that we need to give all our possessions away and become poor. 
in order to be saved. Moses and the prophets called for open-heartedness and open-handedness towards the needy. They did not call for the renunciation of all wealth. In telling this story, Jesus is pointing to what Moses and the prophets called for. He is not saying that the rich or even the middle class must become poor to have any chance of coming to Abraham's side. We don't need to give away all our possessions and become poor. Secondly, poverty is complex and intractable and Jesus does not expect us to erase all differences in wealth. Moses said, as we heard, there will always be poor people in the land. And in John 12, Jesus repeats this. You will always have the poor among you, he said. For life is complex and the reasons for poverty are deep and poor people can be difficult to help with the best will in the world and even with lots of resources to try. And so the expectation of Moses and Jesus is not that we are able to eradicate poverty forever, but it is that we help those who have fallen on hard times, fallen into its clutches. And there are great gains that have been made with local and global poverty and great gains that are still to be made to feed the hungry, to clothe the naked, to house the homeless, to nurse the sick. And it's good. It's good to be bold. It's good to be creative and committed to finding these gains where they can be found. And it's good to support those who are looking for them. Paul's word to Timothy is an enduring word from God for the church today. We read in 1 Timothy, Command those who are rich in this present world to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. That is to say, Paul says, address the rich people in your congregation. They are there, and it's okay to be a Christian and to be rich in this present world, but it is the particular duty of the rich to be generous and willing to share, or at least... It's the particular temptation of the rich to be stingy and unwilling to share. Really, we should all be generous and willing to share. A third comment is that our global connectedness can make the plight of the poor a little overwhelming for us. But it also extends our capacity to do good and relieve need. Images of the famine, plague, the sick, the Homeless are beaming onto our screens from around the world. And while you can't do everything about all of it, you can do something about some small part of it. Christian charities and aid organisations can connect our open-heartedness with the need of somebody who could do with what we can offer and who we could not otherwise help. So there's something good about the global connectedness of the world we live in, as well as something challenging. So fourthly, if you pick something local and something global to support, then you will be doing something precious in God's sight. You don't need to say yes to everything that makes a call upon your person, your generosity, but you don't need to impoverish yourselves, but you can almost certainly share something with someone 
Who needs it? And I'm confident that many of us already do seek to practice mercy and generosity and to guard against thoughtless self-indulgence. So may the Lord use this parable we've had tonight to remind us of his will, that we are merciful and generous, and to renew our commitment to open-heartedness and willingness to share. Let's pray. Father, we know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet he became poor, so that we, through his poverty, might become rich. And so, Lord, as we think on this parable and its warning to those who are rich, not to be tight-fisted and hard-hearted, We pray, Lord, that our hearts would be opened by the example of Christ and by his spirit. We might be those who are willing to share and generous so that we lay up treasure for ourselves for the coming age and take hold of the life that is truly life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.